Welcome to the Burning Zone. I'm Coleman Luck. For the human race, there is one fear beyond all others. It is the fear of death. Every human culture has tried to deal with that fear through their mythology and truth claims. Western civilization is no different. We are desperate to know what happens after we die. The materialist answer that we simply cease to exist, that our consciousness is turned off like a light switch, is nothing more than a statement of faith with no objective proof. Scientists can't even agree about where human consciousness comes from, so how could they know about its end? Little wonder that in this vacuum of scientific ignorance we have become obsessed with first-person accounts of near-death experiences. What is really going on with all of that? In this episode, we continue our discussion of this important subject. Let's start by saying this. The horrible reality of death was at the center of Jesus Christ's entire life, teaching, and work. With that, welcome to the Dark Parade. Last month, we examined a terrifying subject. It's the reality of hell, the center of Satan's kingdom. The Bible presents hell as a prison of great suffering where lost souls, all those who have heard and rejected the salvation of Jesus, and all those who have not lived up to the light that they have been given await final judgment. It's a place beyond human description. Uh, Witnesses have been given to us, people who have experienced brief moments in hell and come back to tell what it's about, at least in some small way. But these voices are almost overwhelmed by the many, many near-death experiences that seem to prove that hell is not an issue that we really should have to worry about. Beginning with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and Dr. Raymond Moody, and dozens and dozens of books after them have been written that tell stories of people who appear to have crossed over into death, uh, and they are met by a loving being of light who affirms them. Many experience a life review, and when it's over, they're sent back with vague messages about universal love and the need for unity and an end to the violence of the human race. They tell us that we're destroying our planet, etc., etc., and we've got to start taking care of it. These are the kind of messages that come back so often from this kind of experience. Most of all, these messages tell us that everyone is heading in the same spiritual direction. Growing through various stages of spiritual development is what we are really doing here in this in this plane of existence, as they would term it. They tell us that there's nothing to fear about death. Ultimately, everyone is going to heaven. And in all of this literature, extremely rare are the experiences that speak about hell. So what is going on here? Now, if hell is real, and if the warnings of Jesus are true, as heartbreaking as it is to say uh, the vast majority of the human race is not going to heaven, it's going to hell. Jesus said in Matthew 7:14 that narrow is the gate and difficult is the way, which leads to life, and there are few who find it. According to Jesus, the vast majority are going toward eternal death. So which of these diametrically opposed messages is true? The first study I began on this subject was many years ago, and it was with a book that I read a long time ago by a man named J. Kirby Anderson. The title was Life, Death, and Beyond. I would recommend it to you. I want to suggest to you tonight that Satan, who is a very real and a very powerful being, is deeply concerned that God's eyewitnesses who have experienced hell be overwhelmed by false witnesses. 
Remember, one of our basic presuppositions in dealing with the lies of Satan. To the best of his ability, he will copy anything that he sees God doing. And as much as possible, he will salt truth and beauty into his lies. That's what temptation is about. I've said many times if temptation was always ugly, if sin was terrible, all of us would be perfect, wouldn't we? Well, it's beautiful so many times until we fall into it. And falling to his lies is addictive. Once you begin doing it, you establish patterns in doing it, it continues on and it grows. Doing so over and over, falling into his lies, falling to his temptations, makes us spiritually stupid. That's what it's about. We become unable to understand the truth, especially about ourselves. We become blind. And that is what he wants. As I've studied the literature of near-death experiences, I've come to believe that Satan uses two strategies coupled with natural human tendency to blind us about the reality of hell. Last January, an interesting man passed away. His name was Maurice Rawlings. He was a medical doctor, a cardiologist. In the early 1970s, Rawlings was not a Christian. That changed in 1977 because of a disturbing experience. He was working with a team of nurses, and they were working on a man who was going through a stress test. And this team was doing this. He was having chest pain, and Rawlings instructed them to work the man until the pain returned. He wanted it to happen there if it was going to happen anywhere. While the man was on the machine, the patient had a heart attack. His heart stopped beating. As Rawlings worked to resuscitate him, He started screaming in terror, pleading for the doctor to save him, because every time his heart stopped, he was in hell. Being a good scientific materialist, Rawlings assumed it was just hallucinations. But his patients just kept shrieking, and it kept on and on, and it was aggravating to him. Uh, When he was conscious, the man pleaded with Rawlings to pray for him. The doctor felt insulted. He wasn't a priest or a psychiatrist. Finally, just to shut the man up, what he did was he he literally created a make-believe prayer. He told the man to say, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Keep me out of hell. And if I live, I'm on the hook. I'm yours. Of course, the words were all a fantasy. uh, But Rawlings didn't believe any of it. But the man did as he was told. And suddenly the strangest thing happened. No longer was he screaming. He wasn't a wild-eyed lunatic anymore. He became relaxed and calm. The terror vanished. Seeing such a transformation frightened Rawlings. Ultimately, it led him to ask Jesus to forgive his sins and be his Lord and Savior. Over the following decades, Rawlings entered into deep research about near-death experiences. As, As a cardiologist, he certainly had a lot of opportunity to examine patients who were having such difficulties, he was a witness to many people who would die and then come back. From those experiences, he wrote several books, including Beyond Death's Door and To Hell and Back. And during his years of observation, Rawlings noticed some very strange phenomena. First, he observed people who had clear and terrifying experiences of hell and communicated those awful visions during the crisis of resuscitation. But very quickly, as they recuperated, something odd occurred. The memory of hell that they had witnessed so clearly entirely vanished. What had happened? There's a logical answer. 
What happens when we go through experiences that are deeply shocking and traumatic, such as a brutal car accident? Uh, to protect us, our conscious minds literally force those memories into our subconscious. We cannot access them anymore with our conscious brains. Rawlings came to believe that this natural tendency towards psychological protection is the first reason why near-death experiences of hell do not appear with great frequency in the literature. The vision is so horrible that the majority of experiencers automatically wipe it from their conscious memories. But Rawlings discovered another reason why we don't read more about near-death experiences and visions of hell. As the years passed and he accumulated more and more records of these events, he contacted Dr. Kubler-Ross and other leading writers in the field. Uh, he offered to share his files with them. They didn't want to see them. And the reason they didn't want to see them was because they didn't want to write about such negative experiences. This led Rawlings to believe that near-death experiences of hell are being consciously suppressed by many in the medical community. And it's understandable. Medical personnel are frightened of them uh, and prefer not to think about them themselves. And, of course, for writers, you sell a lot more books by telling people what they want to hear. I can attest to that. <laughs> but there is a third reason why near-death experiences of hell are not common. One day, Rawlings was doing a questionnaire with a patient who had been shot in the chest. Uh, one of the bullets had nicked his heart, and before he was resuscitated, he had a near-death experience. In this experience, he was taken up into a loving white light where he was welcomed and affirmed. No serious life examination took place at all. The white light did not mention that three years previously he had murdered two people during a robbery. All he felt was peace and love. How had he been shot in the chest? Well, he had been in a bar. He'd started dancing with what he thought was a beautiful woman, but very quickly discovered that it was a cross-dresser. He hated homosexuals, and so he had started beating the man up. The man had gone behind the bar and pulled out a gun and shot him. So what did this man say to Rawlings about his near-death experience? These are his words. Well, it felt good to be in this beautiful place, but I kept wondering why the light never asked me about beating the heck out of the cross-dresser. And the light never mentioned the two killings from the past. I was glad he didn't ask me about those things, but if he was from God, God, why didn't he? I thought about bringing it up, but I said to myself, why knock a good thing, you know, and kept my mouth shut. <laughs> Wouldn't you? I mean, <laughs> I knew I should be in hell instead of this place, but God, does God ever make mistakes? As many of you know, I am a great fan of channel literature. It's so entertaining. What is channel literature? Well, it purports to be writing from a disembodied spirit uh, through a human channel. Now, if you were here a few months ago, you remember that I, I read some choice passages from entities uh, that call themselves the Pleiadians. I love this stuff. But one of the classics of channel literature is a book titled Seth Speaks. Um, according to the jacket, and I'm going to quote from the jacket, Seth is a personality no longer focused in physical reality. Now, I've known several network executives who fit that description. <laughs> but in 1963, this is how this all came to be. In 1963, a woman named Jane Roberts and her husband started playing with a Ouija board. Suddenly, messages began coming from it. 
This led Jane to become a trance medium in order to channel the wisdom of an entity who called himself Seth. I will tell you that when you read so-called channel literature, that you are waiting in a swamp of mental poopy right up to your eyeballs. <laughs> but in the middle of all of this asinine blather, and I assure you it is, you may come upon a little fragment of fascinating information. Seth is a, has a very big mouth, and he loves to boast. He wants you to believe that in him resides the wisdom of the ages. Uh, in his book, he spends a number of chapters telling people what will happen to them after death. Needless to say, nothing that he shares agrees with Jesus in the Bible. But buried in the blather is a scintillating factoid. And I, I believe that this little factoid represents truth. Seth is a busy entity. And he has many associates. According to him, all of them are advanced beings who are deeply interested in helping poor, benighted human beings like you and me. According to Seth, one of their most important activities is to assist people at the moment of transition out of the body. Uh, it, it's one of their regular assignments, according to Seth. Seth and his associates have a great concern. Most of all, it is their desire to meet the spiritual expectations of every human being. Seth wants you to know that all human belief systems are just hallucinations, and once you are dead, he and his friends become guides to help you transition through and beyond your infantile religious beliefs. According to Seth, in order to facilitate this important work, he and his entity cohorts become whatever God you expect to see. Let's listen to his own words as blathered through Jane Roberts. The situation is rather tricky from a guide's viewpoint. Um, for psychologically utmost discretion must be used. One man's Moses, as I discovered, may not be another man's Moses. I have served as a rather creditable Moses on several occasions, and once, though this is hard to believe, to an Arab. The Arab was a very interesting character. Uh, let me tell you about him. He hated Jews, but somehow was obsessed with the idea that Moses was more powerful than Allah, and for years this was the secret sin upon his conscience. He was killed by the Crusaders in the most horrible way. Uh, they forced his mouth open and stuffed it with burning coals as a starter. As he died, he cried to Allah, then in greater desperation, to Moses. And as his consciousness left his body, Moses was there. He believed in Moses more than he did Allah. And I did not know until the last moment which form I was to assume. So with consummate pride, Seth tells us that he and his associates staged a grand pageant for this Arab's benefit with Allah and Moses fighting each other for his soul because for some unknown reason that was what the man expected to happen. Now beneath all this asinine hilarity is a chilling statement. When St. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11.14 that Satan can masquerade as an angel of light we don't take that seriously enough. Before his fall, Satan was in God's presence as one of the most powerful angels he is able right now to mimic the light and love of God. I'm sure what he creates is a very poor copy, but for people who have never experienced the original, it is an alluring counterfeit. What's the purpose of this counterfeit? 
In many near-death experiences, people meet whatever God they believe in and are sent back with messages of false hope. Most of all, the focus of those messages is this. Jesus is not who the Bible says he is. He is just one of many great teachers and avatars who have appeared throughout history. He is not the only savior of the world. Certainly he is not the only way to heaven. Most of all, Satan does not want you to know what Jesus really did to save this human race from hell. Satan knows very well what happened in the heart of his kingdom almost 2,000 years ago. I fear that an understanding of what happened in the kingdom of hell has been lost in the church. It's time we reclaimed it. And here's how it began. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22 if you have your Bibles. I'm going to read a long passage. It's one that you are familiar with. Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 63. This is how the great war began on a new level. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of God in the power of God. And they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nations and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is a Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And Pilate heard of Galilee. He asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. And he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people, and indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have now found no fault in this man concerning those things which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus again, called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Then he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. They were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. 
And the voices of these men of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place where called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And he divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. How many times have you heard this story? If you're like me, you've heard it many times. And you've seen films about it. Son of God taking the sins of the world upon himself. It's clear from the biblical record that behind the human conspiracy that led Jesus to crucifixion, Satan and his dark lords were working feverishly. If you remember during the Last Supper, it says that at a certain moment, Satan himself entered into Judas Iscariot. Satan desperately wanted Jesus to die. I want to, I want to tell you something. There's an element to this story that has bothered me for a long time. As I've said over and over, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a professional Bible scholar. I'm only a storyteller, but every storyteller asks logical questions. As writers, you know, I think there are writers here, we understand that, you know, our characters have to be, we have to ask questions of those characters. We have to understand their motives, their hopes, and their dreams. And especially this is true when you deal with an antagonist, isn't it? As evil as an antagonist may be in your writing, if your story is going to make sense, the villain has to make decisions out of a logical framework based on his view of reality. Even if he is insane. He has some kind of consistent viewpoint. He wants something, and he has reasons for wanting it. And always, from his perspective, the antagonist is the hero, right? So here's the question that's bothered me. Why would Satan want to kill Jesus Christ? He's the Son of God. Satan knows that. 
He's taking on the sins of the world. Satan knows that. He's tried to tempt him to a different course, to personally sin, to be disobedient to God's law and purpose. It hasn't worked. Based on that alone, and this has got to be the logical reality from Satan's viewpoint. If I kill him, he's going to heaven and his death will redeem the human race. It's in the Old Testament. Satan's an expert on the Bible. He knows Isaiah 53 and all the other passages about the suffering Messiah. He knows the passages about him being a conquering king. So let's apply some story logic. Given this understanding, if you were Satan, wouldn't you want to keep Jesus alive forever? Why would you want to facilitate your own destruction? Satan is anything but stupid. So what are we missing here? What is going on that we have overlooked? Let me present an idea to you. What if Satan had an entirely different understanding about what would happen to Jesus when he died? I believe that Jesus himself gives us some hints about Satan's motives. Let's look at a fascinating parable. Matthew 21, verse 33. Matthew 21, verse 33 says this. Here another parable. Jesus is speaking. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits of their season. Jesus said to them, if you never read the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Who is Jesus talking about in this parable? Well, clearly, first of all, he's talking about the hypocritical religious leaders themselves who were in his audience, isn't he? These men wanted to kill him. In a number of places, he calls such men children of their father, the devil. Pretty strong words. It means that to Jesus, they were human representatives of Satan and the kingdom of hell. But let me ask a question. As much as they hated Jesus, did those religious leaders view Jesus as the son and heir of the kingdom? Absolutely not. In his trial, they wanted to crucify him for claiming just such a thing. So on a deeper level, who was Jesus talking about? Who did know that he was the son and heir? Who did want to kill him because of that? Satan and all of his hosts, that's the answer. What does the parable say about the motives of the murderers? They believed that if they could kill the son, the vineyard would be theirs. So what might Satan have believed? First, he believed the eternal truth. Stated in Romans 
for the wages of sin is death. St. Paul wrote those words. What is he saying? What does death mean in this context? Just physical death? Is that what it's about? If that's true, then as soon as our hearts stop beating, the price for sin is paid and we all ought to go to heaven, shouldn't we? But it doesn't just mean physical death. In Luke 12, 4 and 5, Jesus warned that we shouldn't fear the one who can kill the body. We should fear God, the one who can cast the soul into hell. The Bible teaches that because of sin, death is a two-part experience. First comes physical death. That is a minor part. And after that, there is the death of the Spirit in eternal suffering apart from God. The Bible calls this the second death. So what might Satan have believed about the moment when Jesus' Spirit left his body? The perfect Son of God, who has never sinned, has come into the world to do what? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Those little words, to be, do not exist in the Greek. They've been added to make it more readable in English. God made Jesus sin for us. He didn't make him commit sin for us. He turned him into sin for us. It was the ultimate sacrifice mirrored in the entire Old Testament. The whole system of sacrifices presented there, a substitute for the sinner took on the sin and paid the penalty. What sin? Whose sin? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. What sin? The sin of the whole world. By God's decree, Jesus became guilty of all the sins that have ever been committed, from Adam and Eve down to the last child who will ever be born. No wonder in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus cried out, Father, it is possible that this awful cup pass from me. So what did Satan understand? The law of God is clear and immutable. The soul that sins must die. Not just physical death, spiritual death in hell. So what must happen to Jesus from Satan's perspective? In becoming the sin of the entire human race? He is transformed into the most vile and guilty man who has ever lived. God will not be able to stand the sight of him. Into hell, Jesus must go to suffer the second death and remain under Satan's control. I think that's a rational perspective from the standpoint of Satan. The Son of God in hell, what will happen to the world? The vineyard will belong to the prince of the power of the air, and that will be forever. Suddenly it is brutally clear why Satan may have wanted Jesus to die. And at his death, into hell Jesus went. One of the oldest statements of faith in the history of the church is the Apostles' Creed. It says he descended into hell. It doesn't say he was dragged there. It doesn't say he was cast there. It says he went there. What is this statement based on? What does the Bible say happened when Jesus entered hell? Let's look at some mysterious passages. Ephesians 4, verse 7 says this, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. 
Those are the words of St. Paul. Among the Jewish people of Paul's day, the concept of the lower parts of the earth never meant simply a grave in the dirt. It meant going down into Hades, into hell. Look at Colossians 2, verse 11. It says this, In him you were also circumcised by the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Disarming principalities and powers, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. These are the words of absolute violence. The people of the Roman world would have understood exactly what Paul meant. They had seen such things. They had seen Roman generals going into enemy territory and fighting terrible wars. When the enemy was defeated, a Roman general would chain up all the soldiers left alive, and then he would parade them along to show to everyone that he had triumphed over them in utter humiliation. They would be following behind him. That's what Paul is saying Jesus did. What other time for this to have happened than when he descended into hell? What Satan thought, that moment, that moment when Satan thought that he would have absolute power over him. I believe that sometime during the three days that Jesus' body was in the grave, the war of the ages took place. And it was in the heart of Satan's kingdom. Remember that time does not mean the same thing in every dimension. We can understand that from quantum mechanics, the theories, can't we? It's not the same thing. An hour in that world, in that terrible place, that could be like 10,000 years in our reality. He could say to the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise and be true to his word while remaining in Satan's kingdom for what felt like an eternity. I believe that in that war, in the heart of hell, the great victory was won. All of Satan's hosts were defeated by Jesus alone through the power of God's Spirit. He didn't destroy them. That comes later. But he bound them, limiting their power. But before his great victory, what happened to Jesus in hell? For some unknown period, did he suffer the second death for the sinners of the world? The Bible doesn't tell us. But I believe that's what Satan expected to happen. 1 Peter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. God would not leave Jesus in hell. The Spirit made him alive. And after his victory over Satan, he preached the greatest sermon in the history of the world. Based on that victory, how does Jesus describe himself now? You can read it in Revelation 1.18. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. He won those keys by the giving of his life for you and me.
How can we communicate what Jesus has done for us? Where are the words? There is no greater responsibility for a teacher or preacher than to try to communicate what Jesus' death, his descent into hell, and his resurrection really mean. So often the only faltering way to do that is through story. In conclusion tonight, I'm going to do something that I rarely do. I'm going to read a passage from an unpublished novel that I have written called Dagon's Illusion. Bear with me for a moment as I give some background to help you understand what I'm going to read. My novel takes place in several different dimensions of reality. One of those dimensions is in the late 1800s. As you may know, it was a time of great archaeological discovery in this world. Amateur teams uh, were spreading out in the Middle East, digging everywhere. In my story, a team of men goes out to a strange mountain in what is now Iran, a mountain once known as Alamut, the eagle's nest. Alamut has a dark place in history and reality. During the Crusader kingdom of Jerusalem, it was the fortress home of one of the most dangerous cults that has ever existed. It was an Islamic cult known as the Assassins. The vicious leader of this cult was known as the Old Man of the Mountain. This cult was feared throughout the known world for planting murderers in high places who might wait years to strike. In my story set in 1886, a group of evil men goes back to that mountain. They are occultists and they are members of a secret society. Their main purpose is to uncover a formula for an hallucinogenic drug that may have been the source of the old man's power. They find that formula and concoct the drug. In order to test it, without his knowledge, they give it to the youngest member of their party. What I'm going to read is part of a letter sent by that young man to a sponsor of the expedition describing what he saw. Keep in mind that both the author and the recipient are very evil men. Here are the words of the letter written in a sort of style of the 19th century prose. Within minutes of ingesting the poison, horrors beyond description began to descend upon me. I saw the mountain as the mouth of hell into whose Stygian depths I was being dragged never to rise again. In my terror, I did something that I had not done since boyhood. I cried out for help to Jehovah, pleading to him for my soul. Is it not amazing how in the blackest hour our sophistication leaves us and we revert to childlike simplicity? As soon as I had cried out, I fell into a seizure, and then it began. Insensate though I was to this world, my consciousness was fully awake in another. The experience that I am about to relate was as real as anything ever encountered in all my life. Nay, dear God, more real. Was I given a vision? Yes, but not the one intended. A far vaster vision and truth was vouchsafed to me. And here is what opened before my eyes. I found myself flying through black, churning clouds that reeked with an unimaginable stench. When they parted, I was high above a monstrous city with buildings so tall and formidable that I was filled with awe. No city of its kind exists in our world or has ever existed. Within it was represented every form of architecture from the hovels and palaces of the Orient to pyramids and of glass and majestic iron pinnacles that rake the heavens. Spread out below me 
where all the cities that have ever been or ever shall be woven by a mighty hand of darkness into one endless mass. And swirling above it were magnetic winds that slashed the clouds with auroras of fervid light. As I descended, I began to hear a slow, pounding beat so deep and majestic that the air trembled and the very bones of my body were shaken. Soon I was between the highest buildings. To my surprise, below me all the streets were empty. Conveyances of every sort lined the curbs from horses and carriages to odd vehicles that looked like the product of wild dreams, but nowhere were there people. The thundering beat grew ever louder. Suddenly there came a mighty roar. Through no will of my own, I flew around a corner and found myself above a spectacle so strange that my heart quails at the recall. Beneath me was a very broad avenue that stretched to the horizon. And for all of those many miles, it was lined with people. Millions upon millions gathered in fevered expectation. Descending farther, I hovered just above them. Then, God help me, I saw that for which they had congregated. Crawling slowly down the avenue, filling it from curb to curb, staggered the initial phalanx of a mighty army. As their right feet struck the ground, they stomped. It was this that caused the thundering vibration. Though I have called it an army, do not think that these were disciplined soldiers in crisp uniforms. Dear heaven, no, it was a horde of execrable savages. Their clothes had been ripped to shreds. Their heads were covered with ashes and their bodies with blood. Every man's face was skewed upward as though caught in a mindless trance of hate. Each carried a short length of chain with which he flagellated himself every time he stomped. It was the sight of them that made the crowd erupt in cheers. A thousand passed this way, shredding their backs to the bone. My senses reeled. What was I seeing? What did it mean? But I had little time to contemplate. After the first thousand, there came another. These wielded razors, and with them they lacerated their own flesh, opening huge wounds that gushed blood. Many fell dead and were tromped into piles of bloody meat, which only made the crowd cheer louder. These were followed by yet another thousand, who would march ten paces, leap into the air, then drop and pound their heads on the cement. In this manner, dozens dashed out their brains, while others staggered with their skulls broken and oozing. If perchance one should fall among the bystanders, he was bludgeoned to death with the utmost ferocity. From thence the horde grew wilder still, and the watching millions began to chant with such passion that I thought the buildings would fall. Down the avenue poured thousands of men carrying huge idols. Surely all the gods that have ever been worshipped were represented here. As they passed, devotees in the mob would scream their deity's name and sob in ecstasy, throwing flowers and money and precious jewels to be trampled on the street. One cannot describe the twisted visages of this endless mass of statuary, the physical aberrations, the grotesque monstrosities blending man and beast, the soul-crushing lust and torment and rage carved in gold and silver, wood and stone, and how the mob loved these refugees from the shrines of hell. After them came a mass of men carrying a huge black rock which caused the greatest shrieking adulation. Hanging from its sides were long bloody clusters of severed heads like grapes on a vine. Upon this reeking monolith stood executioners with an endless supply of victims. Every second, swords flashed, adding to the vineyard of dangling gore with each new severed head, and the mob screamed louder. Trailing after this evil monument were swooping, leaping dancers. Between them they juggled huge balls of burning pitch, blowing them, throwing them high into the air like little suns. 
When caught, the pitch seared their bodies, causing them to scream in agony, but they would not stop until they were consumed. Just as one was about to fall in self-immolation, another dancer would rush forward to take his place. Thus, piles of roasting flesh littered the avenue, and the stench of burning meat wafted to the sky. This hellish dance caused many in the crowd to fall into swoons of ecstasy. Mothers cried out, pushing their sons into the street to join and burn alive. Though I did not think it possible from this moment the insanity grew worse. There came a thousand marchers that did not injure themselves. They flayed the person in front of them with butcher's knives, carving off huge sections of flesh from backs and buttocks, slicing fat from muscle and muscle from bone, then throwing the bloody pieces to the crowd. These were eaten with Epicurean delight, and the street was a river of gore. The butchers had passed. There rose the greatest cheer of all. What I saw made me sob with such rage and revulsion that I despised my own membership in this wretched race. Toward me came a mass of bloody monsters dressed in soft, flowing robes whose only task was the murder of children, and each specialized in a different manner of execution. From all along the street, parents threw their little ones out to die. I cannot and will not describe what I saw. The screams of terror shall take to the grave with each murdered child the frenzy grew. Almost as a reward for this vile butchery, there came more idols, both male and female, with huge breasts and tongues and phalluses. These were transported on litters, When the mob saw them, men and women rushed out and climbed over the backs of the bearers so they could copulate with the statues in orgies of unspeakable degeneracy. As the hordes watched and screamed, they began duplicating these filthy acts with each other in ever-increasing passion, finally ripping and clawing their human partners, biting off masses of flesh and gouging out eyes. My screams added to theirs as I cried out to God to kill me so I would not have to witness any more of such horror. But he refused to answer my prayer. Slowly, Those who were left alive joined with a great march until everyone was staggering and slithering down a river of gore. But where were they going? What mouth of hell would open to receive such vileness? I found myself flying above them. Suddenly I heard a massive roaring cry as though the heavens had opened and the gods of thunder had descended. Ahead appeared a stupendous building of a magnitude far greater than any that I had seen. It was an amphitheater of unimaginable proportions that would have dwarfed the Circus Maximus in ancient Rome. The marchers were pouring into it through a monstrous gate, and I traveled with them. Upon entering, I stared in amazement. Gathered within this amphitheater was a vast sea of people of every race and nation and tongue, for there were other gates that had opened to other parading mobs. As the crowds filled the stands, there began such howling and screeching and wailing as I can only imagine would come from the lowest circle of hell. My feet touched the ground in the middle of the arena. All around me towered the immense building, packed to the skies with a shrieking human mass. As the bloody millions poured in, the vast space around me was jammed until there was not an inch between the reeking bodies. In the center of the arena stood a wide platform covered with people. I heard human voices ring out louder than any voice could possibly speak. Then there flashed to life on an imaginable vision. The people on the platform were small, and because of the vastness of the building could hardly be seen, but suddenly images of them appeared on what could only be described as living walls of color that hung high along the rim. The loud voices echoed in dozens of languages, leading the crowd in chants. I heard English, French, German, Dutch, Russian, Swedish, Arabic, Hebrew, Farsi, and many, many more. I believe that all the languages of the world were represented. After the hordes had crowded in, last of all came the idols, and when the people saw them, they went wild. Devotees of one god began crashing against those of another until mighty waves of humanity were smashing across the vast spaces in frenzies of ecstatic rage. 
Horrendous acts were the order of the moment. No perversion, rape, or murder did not find its expression in the mob. Thousands of little children were thrown from the highest ramparts. I watched them fall like rain. Finally, when all the the idols were gathered, the gates were closed. Then a single voice roared roared out, calling the execrable murderers to worship. Together they began to sing. Dark fury and madness, the song swelled upward like a mighty ocean. With greater and greater power, it roared to the sky. Then I felt it rolling outward. In my mind, I saw it covering the earth, crushing every city, causing the mountains to fall, opening the deeps. As I listened, terror gripped me, for in the singing, a devil god beyond all others began to form. The sky darkened and stars appeared. Deep within the firmament, I saw the vast shadow of a serpent, twisting, turning, descending in their orgy of worship, copulating with their song. Upon the multitude, his sperm fell like burning rain, and every drop was a spirit of the vilest evil. Singing their rapture, the vast horde gave themselves to their deity, desiring nothing more than to be raped, mutilated, and consumed. And where was I in all of this? Over me came such a detestation of humanity as I have never known to the point that I hated my own flesh. Within this arena, I saw the whole world for what it was. Within this arena, the great civilizations, the edifices of culture, of progress, of enlightenment, of knowledge, All, all were delusions. All were mountains of dung, heaps of excrement, rivers of filth, oceans of vileness so vast that they rolled beyond the shores of time. Beneath the vain shroud of moral sophistication lay the rotting, stinking corpse of humanity, forever unchanged, ever waiting to rise from its ancient tomb and become the raging, ravenous monster. In my revulsion, I lusted for humanity to be destroyed, for this filthy race of plague-ridden vermin to be slaughtered down to the last evil soul. I thirsted for fire to rain down and cleanse the earth, to sear the flesh of mankind into the tiniest cinders and myself among them. This was the hunger that burned within me like acid in my very bones. Perhaps their hellish God would do it. Perhaps that was why he was raining down. I longed, I shrieked for the end of all being. But suddenly... There was a blinding flash, and the great twisting serpent froze. In the sky above the vile horde appeared appeared blazing words in crimson. It was for all of these that Jesus Christ died. Above them loomed a terrible, blackened cross. So staggered was I that I fell to the ground in unspeakable horror. Lies, reeking aberrations, the words crushed me as though beneath an iron fist. I refused to believe them. I damned them. I despised them. For to believe them would mean that all my righteous hate would go unassuaged, my thirst for retribution, my desperate hunger to annihilate this race that had befouled the earth, unfair, unjust, insane. For all of these, Christ died? Never. There could be no such mercy. I would not allow it. Not for this vast horde of shrieking murder, this endless river of human excrement, croaking and gagging at the hideous chimera of undeserved redemption. My eyes were darkened and the cursed vision disappeared. When I awoke, the fools of the expedition were gathered around me, expecting an oracle. Ha ha, I gave them one, but not the one anticipated. Like Balaam, out of me spewed words that were not my own. I told them that we were lost, that all the rigor of endless initiations, the blather of screaming incantations, of Luciferian illuminations could not outweigh one splinter of Christ's hideous cross. 
thinking that I had become a raving lunatic. My comrades bound me hand and foot and imprisoned me in the old man's chamber. But ha ha again, I escaped both them and their hellish mountain. Shortly thereafter, our enemies arrived and wreaked on my faithful comrades God's own vengeance. Alone and raging, I tore my way back to civilization. Since that day, more visions have come. I have seen the crucified and how I hate him. He is consuming my soul with his devouring mercy, piercing me with a thousand daggers of grace. I hate him, yet I cannot hate him without despising my own existence. I hate him, yet in the hating of him I damn the hope that insists on rising with each morning sun. My pride is crushed, my arrogance defeated. All that is left me is a sniveling childish fury. My vaunted resources are crumbling beneath the onslaught of a terrifying love. Have I gone mad? By any worldly standard, the answer must be yes. Yet, why should the world standard be accepted? Would not any rational man agree that based on historic observation, those defining rationality are themselves mortally aberrant lunatics? Which great sane philosophy tames and transforms the vicious human heart? Which great sane philosopher was not himself a broken, creeping lump of failure and fear? Tell me, if you can, in the history of the world, which great intellect bled and died for you and me. Is it not possible that the brutal sanity of heaven stands in opposition to all that our minuscule minds could ever conceive? What is the end to be? Though I fight against it, joy seeps in around the edges. Soon I will be drowned in that glistening crimson flood, horrified beyond imagining I find myself thirsting to be drenched, drenched in the blood of God and with that drenching as a member of this vile race to be redeemed. Is there one of us in this room who is so deluded as to believe that he or she does not have a place in that horrible parade? I tell you that all of us do. Every one of us. And Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, became all of that sin and infinitely more. He became the sin of child murderers and molesters, the sin of prostitutes and adulterers, the sin of rapists and serial killers and mass murderers. He became the sin of Coleman Locke. Why would he do this? Why? The only answer is that he loves us beyond all imagining. He loves this pitiful, vile race so much that he wants, to, wants us to become the crowning glory of heaven, the bride of Christ, who will stand someday pure and spotless before his throne. The parade of hell will become the parade of heaven. Truly, as it says in Hebrews 2.3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? The blood price for sin is paid. The victory is won. Have you made it yours? Thanks for listening. You know, as hideous as my description of the dark parade was, all I did was draw together many of the actual horrors that humans have perpetrated on themselves and others. And so much of it has been done to appease false gods and try to pay the price for sin. We can't do it, but we keep on trying. Based on the evidence from history, the vicious truth about the human race is far more awful than anyone could ever describe. No, we aren't basically good. Quite the opposite. What is so amazing and wonderful is that in spite of what we are, God still loves us. 
I can't understand why. And he loves us so much that he sent his son to actually become all of our individual and collective evil so that he could pay the terrible price that should be ours. Truly, we are lost if we don't accept that incredible gift. Your history had a beginning and it will have an end. That end is coming. It's getting closer day by day. Are you ready?